Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Good to see everybody. Um, lots of new faces. It's cool. Um, I'll get a chance to meet some of you guys um, before, before we let out of here. Uh, last week we had our service cut a little bit short because the ministry fair. I do want to say we had a great turnout for the ministry fair. Lots of names uh, that were submitted for different areas. And, and so I just want to let you know right now that, that all the ministry team leaders are kind of sifting through all the names, contacting ministry leaders, like, like uh, fellowship leaders, to confirm that you're actually like uh, not just some person off the street, like wandered in on the ministry fair day. And you're like, yeah, I'll sign up to be on the hospitality team, you know. And so we just want to make sure that you're plugged in uh, before we commit too much ministry to you. And, and so we're, we're working through all of that. And, and, and so be expecting to hear from people soon if you signed up for some ministry area. Um, but man, hey, look, it feels like summer out, doesn't it? Yes. This is good. This is good. Uh, school's almost over. Who's, who's done after this week? Anybody? Bro, it's been a while. You've been done for a while, Eric. Oh, your master's degree. That's right, I forgot. You've been working on it so long, I just, I forgot. <laughs> um, so, so, anybody going all the way to the end of May? I think the Art Institute folks, some of you guys are going right up to the end of May. Is that right? May 15th. Oh, that's good. Okay, well, that's good. But uh, the summer is always good, and, and, and let me just uh, um, say this publicly. This is what I would say to the Bible study leaders, is that we need to use the summer as an opportunity for our fellowship roots to grow deeper. And what that means is that we got a little bit of free time on our hands, uh, a, a little bit of flexibility. Uh, we want to see you guys hanging out with each other, getting to know each other, making time, going to get coffee with people from your Bible study, your small group. Uh, getting to know ministry leaders, things like that, uh, because we want to come back into the fall uh, completely established, uh, absolutely in love with one another, ready to, to, to go and fight uh, a good fight. And so, uh, you know, as we, as we go into these summer months, let's be ready to hang out and spend time with each other, get to know each other a little bit better. Every year, God is adding to this fellowship, and uh, it's cool to see all the new people, all the new people signing up for discipleship. And uh, we, wanna, we want to practice family together. So we are in Acts chapter 20, so go ahead and flip there if you're not there yet. And just a reminder also, uh, some people who don't, aren't familiar with this, on kaya.live, C-A-Y-A dot L-I-V-E, uh, there's a teaching segment to the website, and you can go there, and you can actually get the notes for the sermon that I'm about to preach. And so if it's easier to follow along, if you've got it on your phone, then you should do that, right? You've got all the notes right there available to you. You can go and grab those right now. So we're in Acts chapter 20, and, and Acts has been a long haul. There's a lot going on, right? Uh, we've saw, seen a lot of really cool stuff happen uh, from the very beginning uh, of, the, of the ministry of the disciples and the early apostles. It's been so exciting, and we've been watching Paul's life, Paul's ministry, Paul's missions work, his travels, the establishment of churches all over uh, Asia Minor in particular, uh, we've watched him as he goes into the synagogues and he's preaching and, and winning souls and discipling. It's been, it's been absolutely amazing. But now we're at this kind of pivot point in Paul's ministry as we've, 
as we've mentioned before, this phase of his ministry that's going back uh, more to a, a, a time of reflection on what God has done, a defense of what God has done in his ministry, right? Because he's, he's going to spend time in jail over the next few chapters. It's going to be hard to watch his ministry life come to a kind of a, a bit of a close. It's a very, it's a slow and steady close to the end of the book, but there's a lot of things to glean. And I, this moment that we're in right now, I think is very, very crucial. Okay, so, so Paul is headed to Jerusalem. He's got to get to Jerusalem. He doesn't have a whole lot of time for Pentecost. And so what he does is he's traveling through Asia Minor again, and, and he sends word to Ephesus. Ephesus is a place where he spent a lot of time and energy on the local church there. Lots of growing disciples, and he sends word to Ephesus, and he says, look, I need you to send the leaders to meet me in Miletus. It's about 28 miles from Ephesus proper. I want you to send the leaders to me, and we're going to meet. And so you can imagine that Paul is in some upper room or in a chamber somewhere, or maybe he's out in a field, and he's meeting with these men, these top leaders uh, from Ephesus. These are the, the men that are the potential pastors and leaders of that church, and he's sitting down with them. And he's giving what we could only refer to as kind of a farewell speech, right? And, uh, and he begins by saying, look, guys, I, I need you to, to consider the entirety of my life testimony and work with you. Let's just take a moment and let's consider who I've, I've been in your lives because there's a good chance I'm never going to see you again. And so he, he begins with this phrase. He says, ye know from the first day that I came into Asia... After what manner I have been with you at all seasons. And and this is a declaration, a reminder of of all of these these key things that they've been through together. And it's an invitation for them to, this is how we referred to it last week, to inspect his life. To inspect his testimony. To say, look at who I've been to you and see if there's any, if I've harmed you or wronged you in any way whatsoever, inspect my life. Um, a lot of you in this room were students of mine, okay? At, at, the, at least some at West High School, okay? You were art students of mine. This is the way it worked in the art classroom, is uh, we would start a project, I would introduce some sort of concept, some sort of idea, and I would turn the students loose to work. And throughout the process, they were accountable to me. They had to check in, they had to tell me what their ideas were. Um, I was up in their face about it. When they didn't get ideas to me on time, I would harass them about it, I would help them. We'd do brainstorming exercises. And then they would work through the process of making, and they would experiment with materials, and they would try new things. And, and we would go through this process together. It would be like two or three weeks, and at the end of that time period, they would submit their work, and um, I would grade it according to a rubric. Does everybody know what a rubric is? Maybe you've had professors that use rubrics, but a rubric is basically this matrix that lists all of the expectations for the project along one column. And then across the column, it says basically you either did excellent, you did okay, or you sucked real bad. That's the way a rubric works. And so you put points in the columns and and things like that. And and so the students were accountable to me. They were accountable to me as we lived through that project. But they were also accountable at the end of the project. When we said farewell to that project, they were accountable to me. And I would grade them according to a rubric. And the things that I listed in that rubric were always the things that I was most concerned about. Okay? It was a checklist, if you will. And, you know, they weren't just accountable to me. They were accountable to their peers in class. Right? Their peers, like in the art classroom, at least in my art classroom, there was enough pressure among the peers that people would feel obligated to do well on their work because people were looking over their shoulder and they're like... So-and-so is not working. 
there was a lot of that going on. They're not working hard or whatever. And they would give each other crap and, and people would push the, uh, one another. And, and then they were accountable to me. And then at the end of the day, those grades get submitted to the counseling office at the end of the semester. And they're accountable to the school whether or not they're going to graduate. Right? There's all this accountability. But all along the way, there was a checklist that sat at the center of each one of those projects. And they were held accountable to very specific things. And what we have here is Paul saying, look, let's talk about the checklist of my ministry, my impact in your life. Let's talk about the ways in which, in which we lived together and did ministry together. And let's see how I stack up. Now, we, we talked about that not in terms of works. Like, we're not performing for one another in ministry. We're not serving each other necessarily as much as we're serving God. But nonetheless, all along the way, we do live together. We do judge one another's ministry. And we need one another in ministry. And we need to push one another in ministry. And that's why there's things that we need to hold each other accountable to. Does that make sense? And so that leads us to the first key point that I mentioned last week. And that is the mission-minded believer lives the same life in private and public. And so the first thing that we looked at is that, is that in order to have a, an impactful and powerful testimony, you've got to be the same person all of the time. Whether you're here at church serving or whether you're at, with your family, right, uh, at, at home or, or you're, you're with the people that you stay with. Maybe you live with some people in an apartment and you fellowship together, people in your small group, people you engage at work, people that you engage in your classrooms. You've got to be the same person all the time. And that's not an easy thing to do. Because we like to perform for one another. We like to pretend. We like to be one person with this group and another person with that group. And it just doesn't stack up to a Christian life. In the Christian worldview, you've got to be the same person all the time. Now, because we know that that's difficult, we're using Paul's life as a launching point for our own. And before anyone else assesses how well we did in this life, before we stand before the throne room of God and God looks at our life and and, and, and assesses how well we did, we have an opportunity to look at Paul's life and ask ourselves, how well am I doing? That's a great gift. That's the beauty of God's word is that he uses it as a looking glass for our life so that we can assess our own lives. Okay, so we got a lot of cover today. May I pray? I'm going to pray one more time. And then you need to have your checklist ready and you need it ready to roll. We're going to spend a very brief moment reviewing the previous two things we talked about and then we'll dig into the other stuff. So, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you again. Uh, I recognize, um, Lord, just how... uh, All of us are coming into this room, and all of us have had kind of different weeks, different mornings, different distractions. Um, A lot of people are focusing on finals and getting stuff done, or maybe it's a busy season at work or, or, or in life, and it's really easy to be distracted. But we've come together this morning in anticipation that you'll speak to us. And because we know it's your will and it's what you want to do, we just simply ask, Lord, would you be faithful to us despite our weaknesses? Like despite the fact that in our flesh dwelleth no good thing, despite that, would you speak to us and would you provoke us to righteous living, purity in our thoughts, mission-mindedness, action, fearlessness, would you push us that direction that, Lord, we would be able to, to like Paul, say, look at, look at my life. 
my transparent life, and that we would all recognize that we stand blameless before others and before you. That's what we desire. So help us. Teach us how to do that. Teach us how to live that way. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, so we talked about this being like a checklist, and so it's going to function like a checklist. And the very first thing on our checklist that we talked about last week was humility. We need humility. Paul says uh, before these Ephesian leaders, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. Humility of mind. Paul declares that his service to Christ and his service before men was done with humility of mind, meaning that his mind, above all other aspects of his body and personage, was responsible for humility. And this is how I want to put it to you uh, this week, okay? I didn't say it this way, but this is how uh, last week, but I want to say it this way uh, this week. Humility is a thought before a behavior. Does that make sense? Humility is a thought and a thought life before it is a behavior and a behavior life or a pattern of works. In other words, a lot of people can say, oh, so-and-so is so humble, right? Because maybe they posture their physical body in a particular way. Maybe they're, they're quiet at times, or, or, and, we, and we refer to that as humble, but the truth, truth is humility begins with the mind. The mind. And, and, and what it does is it says that in my mind I have determined that I am low before all people and before God. Right? It was a few years ago there was, a, there was a, an evangelism campaign that was called I Am Second. I Am Second. Right? You guys remember that? And there was these videos and, and, uh, of people giving their testimony. And I don't know if anybody ever saw this, but it was fairly effective. Uh, at sharing the gospel with people. And these people, famous people, would share their testimony. And the, the name of the videos was I Am Second. And the idea was that I am, I'm secondary. My life is secondary to God's. But the truth is that we're not just second. We're third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. We're at the very bottom of the list. And we engage other people. We're not just second as it concerns God, but we're second as it concerns everyone that we get engaged. And humility is a determination in your mind through the empowerment of God's word that I am going to be meek and lowly in my thoughts and my actions before every person. And it has to start here. We talked about there being two different kinds of mind, the carnal mind and the, and the humble mind. And we want to devote ourselves to a humble mind. And so we asked ourselves, are you holding on to a, onto carnal thoughts? You know, some of us um, will never get to a place where we're, we're humble in our actions and our thoughts because we're too busy thinking about carnal things. All right? And so what we're talking about is just stewarding your time. Stewarding the way you think and what you think about taking time to still yourself before the Lord and prioritize your thoughts. There are some thoughts that are holy, eternal, righteous, spiritual, and there are some that are carnal, and then there's some that are somewhere in between. Anybody know about the in-between thoughts? They're like, they're like the good thoughts. They're not necessarily evil, but they, they exist on this kind of spectrum. We've got to prioritize the way that we think, the way that we become, come before God's word, and the way we let it transform us. But we've got to have quietness in our lives in order to prioritize. And I would suggest that the only way to quiet yourself is to be before the words of God, is to find time to meditate on his words. Does this make sense to everyone? So if you want to, if you want to have humility in your actions, well, let's work backwards. If you want, to, you want to be humble towards other people, let's work backwards. Let's start with our mind. And we transform our mind, we renew our mind through studying God's word. It's crucial. The next thing we looked at was compassion. Okay, so he says to the Ephesians, he says that he came to them and he was before them with many tears. With many tears. And so here we see a more soulish side 
of Paul, right? So we were talking about his, his mind before, but now we're talking about this very soulish aspect of who Paul was, and that was his emotions. And he was willing to shed tears for the ministry. He was willing to do that. That his love for them it was not just about words and actions. We can say things, and we can behave in certain ways. We can force ourselves to perform something before people. But man, when someone's crying, there, there's, there's something very genuine about that. Emotions are very revealing about a person. And so the question becomes, what have you attached your emotions to? So many of us have emotional responses to all of these vain and worthless things. Things that we fill our lives with. Possessions, things that we feel like we have to have. Jobs that we thought we were supposed to get. Right? You, you, anybody felt really sick to their stomach or sad after they interviewed at some place, you really wanted the job, and then you didn't get it. You may even get in your car, and you might cry or something. You might get the phone call, you might cry. We, we cry about, we, we attach our emotions to so many different things. But I wonder whether or not you're attaching your emotions to souls, to people, to the things that God cares about. Again, that's a work that's done in the quietness of study and meditation in God's Word. That's how you transform your heart. You know, we allow ourselves to be stirred by empty activities. You know, I don't know if anybody's ever played sports with me. But I'm fairly competitive. I have the, I have the ability to attach my emotions to just about anything I'm doing. <laughs> but so much of that stuff is just vain and worthless, isn't it? And if you can do it in those areas of your life, your, your workplace, right? Taking pride in what you do at work or, or your grades or the, the art that you're making or whatever it is, you can tie your emotions and your priorities to that. But what about the people around you? I mean, are you concerned about their lives? Are you concerned about whether or not they're growing in the Lord? Are you shedding tears for other people? As we inspect our lives, we have to ask whether or not we're willing to expend emotion on things that actually have value. Psalm 126.6 says... He that goeth forth and weepeth beareth precious seed and shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And basically the insight of this passage is is that a person that's willing to weep over the things that God cares about is the same person that will reap a harvest. Their lives will ultimately have value before the Lord. And so there's something to attaching our emotions to the things that God cares about if we want to be profitable in this life. Paul's standing here before the Ephesians and he's saying, okay, assess my life. Look at what God's done and note how my emotions were attached to every single one of you and everything that God was doing. I threw my life, not just my, not just my actions and my thoughts, but my feelings as well into the work. And we ought to do the same thing. Okay, now that leaves us with number three. This is where things get new. Are you ready? The next thing on my list here is that we need to be resolved. Resolved, specifically in the face of temptation. So he talks about shedding tears, and then he says, and temptations. You knew me in seasons of temptation. Now, I love how vulnerable Paul's being here, because he was just talking about how he was willing to shed tears for them, and now he's saying, look, you even saw me in the midst of temptation. And I have to say, in, in leadership, it takes a lot of vulnerability to let people see you in your temptation. 
to, to see you when you're, when you're under attack, when, when, when you're facing something that you don't know how to deal with, when you're being drawn away and your desires aren't right, and, and to be in that and be that way bef- before people, that's a very vulnerable place to be for a leader. Like, you have to understand, maybe from my perspective, like, my job is to shepherd this congregation of people. And so I have a responsibility to have a blameless testimony before you, to live a particular way. But especially among the, the, the leadership and the Bible study leaders, they've all seen me at low points. Like, I've just determined that they're going to see me as a human being. And, I'm a, and as a human being, there are times in which I'm tempted I'm tempted to act ways I shouldn't and tempted to say things I shouldn't, to feel things I shouldn't. And what Paul's saying here is that you saw me in those seasons. Everyone was watching Paul. Everyone. All eyes were on Paul. He was the man. I mean, do you remember some of the stuff that he was doing in Ephesus? I mean, miracles were being done. God was using him. He was healing people. I mean... Everyone was watching Paul, and they wanted to see how he would respond in moments of hardship. When the lusts of your flesh are enticed, how will you respond? When your flesh is telling you one thing and your spirit's telling you another thing, how will you respond? People are watching. How will we respond when we're tempted to turn to our flesh in anger, malice, frustration, How are we going to act? How are we going to respond? People are watching. Paul gave these men access to his life, and he withstood the test of temptation. And, you know, I I desire personally to be the type of person that can air my laundry and none of it be dirty. Right? I want to be able, you you know the old saying, right, to air your dirty laundry. I would love the opportunity as a leader that God has entrusted with, with so much, so much that I don't even deserve, to be the type of person that can be vulnerable, open, that you can see my life, that I can air my laundry, and then none of it be dirty. That's the kind of person that Paul was. And I think that that's a big deal. And I think that in order to live that way and to be righteous, you have to be resolved that in the face of temptation, you're not going to fall. And, and I want to put it this way because I know that there's a lot of people in the room right now because you're a human being, not because you're, you're particular, particularly weak than anybody else. There's a lot of people in this room, even right now, who, who are continuing to make excuses for sin. And when the temptation comes, you don't even acknowledge it as temptation. You kind of ignore the fact that it's tempting. This, because you know that if you acknowledge it as temptation, that you're going to have to say no. So you kind of let these things that you know are bad for you, that are, that are fleshly, that are wicked, creep into your lives. You pretend like you don't see them, and then they, they bite you, and they grab hold of you, and they ensnare you. And then once again, you find yourself ensnared by your temptations. And so our first question, again, as we're inspecting our lives is, do I actively say no to things my flesh wants? Now, I'm not just talking about that in terms of sin. I'm talking about that in terms of learning to discipline your lives. Okay, I'm talking in a much broader sense. Are you guys with me? Is it hot in here? It's hot. 
It's hot. Okay, so try to look past that for a second. I'm asking you a really serious question. What I'm asking you is, are you a, are, is your life disciplined, and do you make a practice of saying no to things that you don't need? Little things. Small things. One more cupcake. Right? Another fistful of Takis. I was just looking at Amanda. Last time I was at her. Oh, no, it was, it was a party. You guys brought the Takis to Hannah's house. There was something going on. And I sat at that bag of Takis all night. And you know, the problem with that is you get in the car and you go home and your mouth feels raw, like you've just been eating dry Captain Crunch. You know what Captain Crunch does to your mouth? Takis do the same thing. Those salts and things, they just destroy the inside. There's nothing good about it. And I should have just said no. I should have said no, and I didn't. And there's all these things in our life. We need to learn to say no to things. We need to live disciplined lives. Not for the sake of discipline, but because we need to practice learning how to say no, because there's going to be times in our life where Satan is going to tempt us, and it has to be really casual for us to say, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need that. So that's our first question. Do I actively say no to things my flesh wants? James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. The other question would be this. Do I actively avoid situations in which I could be tempted? James 4.7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So as an empowered believer, you actually have the ability... To avoid any, like, to assess your life and say, I know the things that tempt me, and I'm going to avoid them. I know the people that tempt me, and I'm going to avoid them. I don't, have to, I don't have to surround myself with people, places, and things that I know are going to entice my flesh. So it's not just a matter of when the temptations come, acknowledging it and saying no, but it, but it also includes actively avoiding the things in our life that we know will tempt us. So there's, there's certain places in my life I know that I can't go as a believer. There's certain pl- things I can't do. There's certain people I can't engage in relationship. Because I know if I do, they will, call, they will cause me or tempt me to stumble and fall. And so you all know what those people, places, and things are in your life. It's your responsibility as a believer to avoid those things. Okay, so we need to be resolved in the face of temptation. But continuing on and connected to that idea is we need to be fearless in the face of trial. So Paul says this thing to them. He says, and and temptations. So you you saw me in temptations. And then he very easily flows right into a continued thought. And he says, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. See, Paul wasn't just tempted. He was outright attacked. He wasn't just tempted. He was attacked. And the temptation Paul faced was not just personal attack, but it was spiritual attack. Satan put external temptation in, temptations in Paul's way to cause the ministry that he was responsible for to fail. The lying in wait of the Jews. And so let's, let's break that down just for a second so we better understand what we're talking about. Is that all of these leaders that are sitting here with Paul... They would have seen Paul in his day-to-day life engaging people who are contradicting him, arguing with him, fighting him, and looking for opportunities to cause him to fail. 
Okay, and this was demonic. This was satanic. This was, this was wicked. This was evil. There was attack against the work, and they knew that the best way to attack the work was to attack Paul. Does that make sense? And so what was going on, I mean, you guys remember in, in, um, in just the last chapter, the whole controversy over Diana among the Gentiles? But also, these Ephesians would have seen Judaizers that were traveling from Jerusalem and other parts of the region, and they would travel and they'd follow Paul around, and they'd contradict him, they would fight against him in the synagogues, and they would say all of these things that were just untrue, and they'd fight with him and argue with him. Why? Because they wanted to cause him to stumble publicly. That when everyone was looking, Paul would mess up. So people, people see how you respond in moments like this as well. People are watching you. Moments where you're, you're being shunned or rejected by other people when you're under attack. They're looking to see how you're going to respond. Okay, so let me give you an example. Everybody knows that work is hard, yes? But being a Christian at work is particularly hard, isn't it? Because you're... you're You've been given some sort of responsibility in your job, and you're supposed to do it well, but things don't always go the way you expect, and problems arise, and, and, and relationships, there's tension in relationships at work. Anybody ever faced him, those kind of, uh, you know, tensions among people in your workplace, where you disagree, and Eric's like, my whole life is one giant tension. <laughs> Eric's got a new job. It's, it's been good but hard. Yeah? And, uh, and so there's tension that arises between people. That's a very natural thing. But people are watching to see how you respond when people treat you poorly. Right? And the further along in ministry you get, the, and the more you commit yourself to the work of Jesus Christ, the more you begin to realize that some of those tensions and some of those attacks are going to be directly against your message and the things that you, that you believe. And people are going to speak out vocally. They're going to be vocal about how they disdain something about who you are, what you believe in. And you're going to witness to people. And that's a vulnerable thing to do. And you're going to share the gospel. And you're going to put your heart out there. And people are going to freaking want to stomp on it. And you're going to get rejected, right? We've talked about this over and over again in the book of Acts. All the times in which these mission-minded men were rejected time and time again. People would shun them, throw them away, even beat them publicly. And yet it's our responsibility to stand fearless in the face of all of those situations. Whether it be simple tension at work, or someone rejected the gospel and now you feel weird with them. You know, you know a person in your classroom and you've got to retain that relationship, or a teacher. You know, I, I, like I just recently had a conversation, there's a young man in this ministry who's just about to graduate and he's studying biochemistry. And he's had to make a really hard decision like ethical, biblical, ethical decisions about things that he disagrees with from a Christian perspective. I'm not going to do things the way you're asking me to do them, but I'm going to continue to work hard. And, and people that once respected him in his program are kind of shunning him and rejecting him because of what he believes. And so that's just one example. Everybody who's following Jesus Christ has got examples like that. And so when you put your heart out there, you've got to anticipate from time to time somebody's going to step on it. 
And when they do, you don't get to respond in anger or frustration. You just got to be fearless and keep moving. This was important to Paul. The validity of your faith is proven in these moments. People want to know that your God is worth following in the good times and the bad times. And the other thing is that people in ministry are watching you too. So I think about the Bible study leaders and the people that are discipling and the people that are moving into uh, uh, ministry leadership and responsibility. The people that serve with you are watching your life to see how you respond. When things get tense at church, things get tense in ministry, you walk in and you got that crummy look on your face. Everybody sees it. Everybody sees it. You come in, you got the bad attitude or something didn't go the way you wanted it to. You know, uh, people aren't doing what they, you know, I had these expectations and people, people don't like it and, and people aren't doing what they're supposed to do and we're not getting, okay, everybody in leadership feels that way from time to time, but it's very, you got to be very, very careful because people are watching you. People are watching you. Are you functioning in the spirit? Because if you function in the spirit, it says, you know what, when I die, I'm going to heaven. And none of this crap matters anyway. Like that's called an eternal perspective. So whether or not this thing gets done or that happens or this was hard or that was or or I'm in a season of temptation or trial or people are treating me mean. Okay, we've talked about this over and over again. You don't you don't get to dwell in that because you know where you're going when you die. That sets everything right. 1 Thessalonians 2.2 says that ye be not so shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. You see that perspective? Christ is coming. I don't need to be shaken in mind. I don't need, I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to despair. I don't need to be frustrated. I don't need to be angry. The day of the Lord is at hand. 2 Corinthians 4.1 Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed. That's like my whole life. Confused about everything. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That is an eternal perspective. And that's what we need to have in our lives. We also need to be sacrificial. Sacrificial. He says to them, I kept nothing back that was profitable unto you. That's his next statement. I kept nothing back. Kept nothing back. All of it was yours that was profitable unto you. So so Paul was generous in his response to need. And we've talked about this a little bit as we've looked over the last couple of chapters about how the believers were generous with one another when they saw need. Remember, he gathered all all those offerings through Asia Minor to take to Jerusalem with the intent that he would provide for the needs of the church in Jerusalem. And so all of the believers are thinking this way. We're going to make sacrifice for one another. And so what he says here is no surprise to anyone. When I served with you, I kept nothing back. I held nothing back. It was all yours. It was all open. I lived a life with two open hands before you. His generosity was not contingent on his own personal desires. Right? That's what that means. It means that, like, even though you want that thing, there's a thing in your life that you desire, the thing that you want to achieve, all of that's open in light of service to others. You can give up anything 
Anything you need to give up, you can do it. If you know that it's going to benefit or profit the brethren. So here's the first question is, do you desire to respond to the needs of the body? Do you desire to respond to the needs of the body? In other words, is your first inclination, I'm ready to give. Oh, so, so-and-so is in need? What do they need? Tell me about it. So-and-so's hurting? What can I do? So-and-so needs my ear? They need my tears? They need my time? How can I give of the things that I steward? See, that's, that's the first impulse. That's the first impulse should always be, what can I give and what can I do? That's how believers, that's how Paul lived. And that's his example to us, you understand? But so many of us are withholding things back. Like all of this, yes, but none of this, thank you. Like this stays back here, this is mine. This is my agenda, this is, my, this is what I, I've got going on. And, and, and I'm not willing to sacrifice of this stuff even if I know that it might profit somebody else. And, and we live that way. We don't even think about it. We don't even consider it. We've got so much stuff that we've kind of tucked away that we don't even acknowledge that sometimes that's stuff that God wants you to give up. Proverbs 28, 27 says, He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack, but he that hideth his eyes shall have many a curse. That's pretty... That's a pretty serious statement. He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack. Now, here's the question, though, and this is very important, and I feel like it needs to be addressed, especially with young people, is this, this point that Paul makes here. He says, I kept nothing back that was profitable unto you. So there's a stipulation. So how do you determine when and who and what you need to give to? You can't just give to everyone and for every cause all the time, can you? Because you would have nothing to give tomorrow, right? So if you're always just giving everything to the point where you have nothing, that, that is not going to work out to, your, to, to a long-term ministry benefit to anybody. Right? There's all of these ministries, they call themselves Christian, and they give and they give and they give to all of these causes and these needs, but very little of it has anything to do with, with spiritual profit. Right? They're focused on physical things. You know, feeding mouths. Nothing wrong with feeding mouths. Building wells in, in you know, sub-Sahara Africa or whatever it is that people are doing. And, and, and they do these things with a, with a good heart attitude, but maybe, maybe the wrong discernment. Right? So what Paul says, and this is his measurement, is whether or not it's going to be profitable to the spiritual well-being and the maturing of the people that he's ministering to. Will it have profit? There's some people that you give to and it won't profit anything. You can just throw your money away all day long. You can throw away your time and your energy and your resources. You could do that and that's fine and that would be a good thing. All right, but you'll have nothing to give anyone tomorrow. So there has to be a level of discernment involved in how you give, you understand? And for Paul, our example, the measurement was, is this going to be profitable? In other words, I want to give. That's the first thing he said, I want to give. But then he asked himself, will what I do be profitable to the spiritual maturing of this individual? Will it benefit them? Will it benefit them in an eternal way? And if yes, 
proceed if I can. And if no, then wait and see if God will minister to, him, to them out of his, own, uh, uh, of his own volition. You know, God's real big. Sometimes the things that you can't touch or you're not supposed to proceed in, you're just simply supposed to pray about it and let God do his thing. He's bigger than you anyway. He's bigger than your checkbook. He's bigger than your time, your energy. He's bigger than all those things. And so sometimes we have to commit things to prayer because that's the most profitable thing for that person. Does this make sense? We run into stuff like this in ministry all the time, and I just want to be very, very practical. Like, people have needs. We're going to have needs. And our first inclination should be, hey, I want to give. But the next thing we should do is be discerning about whether or not if we do give in this instance, will it be profitable to that individual, or do we need to entrust them to the Lord that in time God will work that thing out? Does this make sense to everybody? It's the heat, isn't it? It's the heat. Are you, guys, you guys look so out of it. Okay, so here's the question. Do you determine what you sacrifice based on what, what spiritual profit there is? So when you make sacrifice, are, are you doing it? Are you doing it with the intent that it be profitable to others? If we want to be profitable to Christ, we want to sacrifice in a way that's profitable to the maturing of other believers. Here's the next thing, okay, and and this is the last thing on our checklist, is that we need to have a consistent message. Paul said he had a consistent message, all right? Considering his testimony and considering his message, he says, I've taught you and my message has been consistent. It's always the same. This is what he says. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. If you look at the entirety of the preaching in the New Testament, like if you study the New Testament and you look at all of the sermons, Peter preaching, Paul preaching, all the sermons throughout the the book of Acts and, and other places in the narrative of the New Testament, what you always find is that the message always includes two things. Two things. Repentance and faith. That's the gospel. Repentance unto God the Father and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every message in the New Testament, every preaching sermon, it always can be boiled down to those two things. Repent before the Father and believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this reminds me of a very similar passage. So so wait, 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 what's Paul saying here? He's saying, guys, look, I've always said the same thing. I haven't had many messages. I haven't been distracted with other thoughts or opinions. Everything I've ever said has always been boiled down to the same thing. Repent and believe. That's a big deal. And it reminds me of this passage in 1 Corinthians 2.2 where he says, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Like it's even in the way he thinks. He's like, I don't even, when I engage you, my only intention in my heart and the humility of my mind is to simply point to Jesus Christ and to call you to repent from sin. Our message should consistently be repent and believe. Nothing wavering. You know, year over year, interaction over interaction, a consistent witness is necessary. So the thing that you're preaching right now, you know, some people went and did hit the streets. Who did hit the streets yesterday? I know that there was a handful of people that went out. Lon's the only one. Oh, okay. There's a handful. Good. I see a few. Lon is always the one, by the way. Don't ever forget that. Lon needs comrades. He needs people out there helping him. 
I know you, I know you witness and you find other opportunities, but from time to time, go hit the streets. There's no excuse, right? It's so nice outside, right? It's so nice out. Get your small group together and go. Okay, but, but here's the point, is that what you preach now, it ought to be the same thing you're preaching when you're 85, when you're 90 years old. It should be the same exact thing you're preaching. It should be consistent. The thing that the believers were preaching in the first century ought to be the same thing that we're preaching 2,000 years later. Nothing has changed in that message. But here's the problem in 2021, is that woke Christians are afraid to call people to repent because they're afraid to talk about sin, because they're afraid to talk about hell, and they're afraid to be judgmental. And that, listen, believers, that's so wicked. That's so wrong. Because, listen, you know what the more judgmental thing that you're doing is? Is that you're saying, God, your word isn't good enough. And we've got to fix it so it's more palatable for other people. And we've got to fix it. And what Christians bled and died for in the very first century, that's not good enough for me now. And people are bastardizing the beauty of this book. And they're throwing away the simplicity of the message because they much rather be on the side of history, the right side of history, right? And this is the way Christians think now. And it's, listen to me, it's only going to get worse. Because what does Laodicea mean? Rights of the people. And Christians are more concerned about rights than about the righteous. Our, our message has got to be consistent. We can't waver. And so the question for you is, has your message wavered? Do you try to make it more palatable? You know, the older I get, the less I care. I remember being young. I remember being young like you and thinking, well, I've got to make sure I massage my approach. You know, I've got I to bide my time. I've got to wait. I've got to... And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking time building relationships and making sure... But listen to me. If things don't ever land with repent and believe, then you have failed the person that you're seeking to invest in. You've failed them. You've failed them. We've got to have a consistent message. And not only that, is that we have to teach it the right way. Paul says, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. So I've not just preached the message, but I've shown you that my gospel is true in the way that I behave. In other words, I taught you in my actions. I showed you. So, so here's the thing. In, in education, this is what every teacher is, learns when they go into education, is that the best type of teaching is modeling. And so as an art teacher, back on that subject... As an art teacher, I never just told the students what they're supposed to do. I tried to show them as much as was possible in me. And so I would take that material, or I would I'd take that paintbrush or that pencil, and I'd show them how to do it, and then they would do it. And if they did it wrong, I'd correct them, and we'd do it again. And, we, and I would show them, and I would live life with them until they learned. And so what we see here is that Paul didn't just speak he just didn't stand in front of people and pontificate and expound on the virtue of God's word. He showed them in his actions. And the question is, do you do that? Do you teach people in the way that you function in your ministry? 
I mean, I'm talking about everything. The way that you organize your life, the way that you speak with people. You know, when I'm counseling, sometimes I like to include the Bible study leaders as I counsel with someone because I want them to watch me as I counsel. I want, the, I want them to see my approach. I want, the, I want them to, to, to do the way I do. And in time, we all get better for that. That's the best kind of learning is both speaking but also doing and modeling for people. And that's the kind of ministry that Paul had. He was both consistent in what he spoke, but he was also consistent in, in how he spoke it with his life, his actions, and his mouth. James says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Paul's whole life said something. His whole life. It said something. Everything he did, every action, every moment of servanthood, it all said the same thing. It said, repent and believe. And our life ought to be the same. So, before we close, I want to I ask you a question. So we've, gone, we've worked through the checklist of Paul's life. And we've seen all these behaviors that he put on display, all these things, his character qualities, he put on display and he said, look at my life and inspect it. And this is his farewell message. Like, this is the last thing that they're talking about. Now, it made me think a little bit about funerals. And it made me think for a second, what if you were to die tomorrow? You were to get in a car accident or something was to happen, you were to die, you were to pass away, and we, we here at Mid Midtown hosted your funeral. And I'm up there, and I'm crying, and I'm talking, and your family's there, and your friends are there. And as people begin to eulogize your life, we begin to realize really quickly that what people are saying, your family is saying one thing about who you are. Your friends are saying one thing about who you are, and the people at church are saying another thing about who you are. And they're all talking about, oh, so-and-so was so fun. They, were, they, they used to love to blah, 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 blah. And it sounds this way. And it, like the people at church are like, what? Wait a second. That's not the version of that person that I knew. Or your family is like, oh, they were this way and that way. And then everybody's looking at each other like, oh, I don't remember, remember that. You know, my brother's life was that way. And I remember being at his funeral. His life was very divided. It was very divided. It was like family and church and Christianity and he always was falling back into temptation. He had these friends that he was always with. And man, I remember at his being at his graveside. And you got my family and all the Christians that loved my brother and knew him. And we're heartbroken, but we're hopeful. And then you have his friends, you know, they're, they're pouring out 40 ounces on his grave, you know. And, you know, I go and I visit his grave. And I, I would pick up, you know, roaches and, and beer bottles and stuff that people leave there like flowers, like a testament to his life. And I pick them up, I walk them over and throw them in the trash can. And the, the truth is, the one version of my brother is just as true as the other one because he was both. He was divided in his actions. He was divided in the way that he thought. He was divided in his life. And so the question is, look, 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 listen to me. Do you have a divided life? That when your life is open to inspection, that this checklist is going to be completely inconsistent based on who you ask. Among the Ephesians, when they looked at Paul's life, they had no choice but to confirm and say, yes, 
That's exactly what you're saying you were. That's exactly who you were. That's who we saw you to be. And we are so grateful and so thankful. Will people be able to do that about you? That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And every day that passes, every year that passes, every wrinkle that I see on my face is telling me I've got one, I've got one life to live. And I want to live it open for inspection. I have one life to live. It's going to be over before I know it. Did I live in a way that was impactful, vulnerable, open, and glorifying to God? And if you know that you've struggled with this, today is the day of repentance. Today is an opportunity for you to confess that. To grab a hold of someone and pray and say, I've been living a divided life. And if they were to eulogize me tomorrow, I know that the things that people would say about me are completely inconsistent. And if you know that that's you or there's areas of your life that you've been hiding or holding back and there's something, there's something amiss about this checklist, that something that doesn't match up, and we're family. Let's deal with it together. Let's confess those things. Let's get them right because, listen, we've got a mission to do. We've got work to do. There are souls that need to be saved. And we can't allow our stupidity or our poor character or our lack of faith or the things that we're hiding, we can't allow those things to get in the way of what God wants to do. Amen? So I'm going to invite the worship team up. I'm going to pray. And as you've got a need, like an area of your life that you need to deal with or something you need to confess or something you need to work through, there's going to be leaders up here. And they'll pull you off to the side and, and, and you guys can go meet somewhere quiet. But this is an opportunity to talk through that. You understand? Amen? Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and uh, we're thankful for you. And we acknowledge the fact that we will never be perfect. Like, I can't help it. My, my laundry is always going to be a little dirty. And, uh, and, and because I'm weak and, and I'm, I, I know that I, I fail you often and that the checklist is just, it's not always consistent. I know that. And it's because of that I remain humble before you. I, I acknowledge the fact that, Lord, I'm nobody. Like, I'm... I'm Lord, I, I labor in vain. I need you. I need you in my life. I need you to lead me. I need you to guide me. I have no hope without you. I have no purpose without you. And any area of my life that's inconsistent, God, I say, take it. Any area of my life that I've been holding back or area of my life that I haven't been left open for inspection, Lord, I give it to you. I want to be the same person in private that I am in public. But that's going to take your help. I need your spirit. So show me. Help me. And Lord, I pray that every person in this room that acknowledges their own weakness, that they would lay it before you, and they begin to conform their character and their personage to who you are in light of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.